This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 368, A Conversation with Jim Zub. This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 368. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is our Conversation with Jim Zub episode. Jim Zub is the writer of the upcoming Thunderbolts book from Marvel and has also uh, done various other projects with the other major publishers in North America. He's also done some uh, creator-owned stuff currently with Image called Wayward. Uh, we were very lucky to get Jim to sit down and talk about uh, his career in comics thus far, his, uh, his uh, education, his uh, learning in animation, as well as we talk about, the, uh, obviously, the upcoming... Thunderbolts run from Marvel. Uh, if you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, thanks again uh, for downloading this episode, and let's jump right into the interview with Jim Zub. Jim, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It is a, a beautiful, beautiful Monday afternoon. The weather is very summer-like, uh, and uh, I think people are, are feeling good to be stepping out from winter. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, people who aren't us don't realize that you and I both are actually in the same cities. We're both in Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. Uh, so we actually are having a very nice... Uh, it's an April afternoon, so it's very nice. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about comics. Um, now, usually, yes. the, usually the question I, I, I start off with is the more pedestrian how did you first start reading comics but what I've, I've started to do more of instead is saying when you sign things what is the oddest thing that you've had to sign thus far oh weird uh okay so um the oddest thing i've ever put my signature on is probably so i did um i did this book for uh disney and marvel called figment based on the journey to imagination mm-hmm. uh attraction at, at disney world and so people will bring me like their figment stuff from Disney. So I've signed like little figurines. I've signed like a t-shirt and, and people's buttons and all kinds of funky stuff like that. Now, uh, let's jump right into that. What was it? How, how was it like getting that kind of gig and how does that gig come about? Um, it was really cool. Actually, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. That was my first kind of real Marvel gig for the most part as a writer. So, um, Bill Roseman, who was the editor of like special projects at Marvel, I'd known him for a while, and he was aware of kind of my um, sword and sorcery stuff because I've done quite a bit of that writing. And so, what happened was uh, he was working with the Disney Imagineering team. He did not know Journey to Imagination too much, but he knew that there was a dragon involved and there was some sort of magical element to it, and he thought a guy who kind of does fantasy stuff and magic stuff. So he um, called me up and asked me if I would be interested. The funny thing is, is that my background's actually in classical animation, like Disney-style animation. That, that was my oh, really? career thing. <laughs> and so even though Journey to Imagination is less kind of high fantasy than he was thinking, it was still a really good fit for me. And so uh, I ended up taking on that project. I had a ton of fun with it. Got to work with the Disney team and uh, it went over well enough with the readers and with retailers that we did a sequel as well, Figment 2, which came out um, uh, last year. Wow. Now, now now, we can go back to the, the traditional question. So what was your first kind of interaction with comics when you were younger? Uh, I'm sure I 
like, I mean, you know, like most people, I, I, you know, read newspaper comics and Garfield and whatever. The first comics I remember, like, I'm sure I read comics before this, but the comics I remembered actively collecting and going out of my way to seek out were the, um, the Marvel G.I. Joe comics. Oh, yeah. So I'm watching the cartoon pretty heavily, and I got one of those, I think we went to, like, Toys R Us or something, and they had, like, those three packs. You get, like, three comics in there. It was, like, a, a random issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and there was a G.I. Joe issue. And uh, I really liked it, and I, I remember kind of digging in on it. It was like, I don't know, issue maybe like seven or eight or something. And then I started working my way back from there, trying to get the older ones, and then, you know, sort of uh, uh, collecting them forward from that point. And then soon after, I mean, I remembered reading, like, I don't know if you remember this magazine called The Electric Company. Oh, yeah. And they, they had Spider-Man stories, little Spidey stories. Oh, yeah. I had liked Spider-Man growing up, and so then I saw Spider-Man in the ads in the G.I. Joe book, and I was like, Spider-Man's awesome, so I started collecting Amazing Spider-Man, and that kind of got me pretty heavily invested eventually into the Marvel Universe, and my brother and I would uh, rapidly collect the Marvel stuff through the 80s. Nice. Now, you said that your original kind of career path was, in an, was going classical animation, so you always yeah. kind of had an interest in animation? Yeah, I grew up watching tons and tons of cartoons, like many people, and then there was, um, it it was something where I realized, I don't know, remember, early in high school, this idea that, like, comics were something I loved, but it felt like you had to either live in uh, New York, or you had to be, like, a true genius, or be British for some reason, because of British Invasion, in order to break (laughs) into the comic business, and so I just, it didn't seem like I could reach it, like, I didn't see a pathway and I looked at animation and I man there's like hundreds of people's names on every one of these films or TV shows and I knew there was quite a bit of animation production here in Toronto and there was a school that was teaching animation out in Oakville which is west of the city and so I felt like well that seems like a much more reasonable path pretty pragmatic but it was also something I loved so it felt like I could dig in on that and really get into it and that's that was sort of what I went to school for now, how did you end up kind of making the transition to actually moving into comics then? Um, so what happened was I, I did end up working in animation. I worked for a few different studios and uh, realized pretty quickly that I, I still love animation, but some of the you know production stuff and the grind is pretty intense, and you'll work very, very hard. And um, in many cases, your name is not very prominent. You know, you're, you are one of those hundreds of people that are working away and sort of toiling in the background. Um, so while I was working at an animation studio, this would have been the late 90s, early 2000s, um, I started uh, in the evening kind of working on my own comic story as just something kind of fun to do on the side. And I had moved away from Toronto, and I didn't know a ton of people, and so it was sort of something to keep me occupied in the evenings as well. Um, I had seen that there were people posting comics online, and most of those were like kind of newspaper-style strips and so I wanted to do a more kind of dramatic story, but I felt like, okay, well, at least the web, I can make a website. That seems far cheaper and more reasonable than trying to figure out how printing and distribution and all that sort of stuff works. And so in, in late 2001, I started posting a dramatic comic online and uh, started to meet other people who were making comics. And so that was sort of my first kind of foray, I guess, into the business, although in a real informal sort of way and it, within a year or so I was um, I met Scott McLeod he had reached out to me 
the guy who did understanding comics. Of course, yeah. Yeah, he thought my online stuff was neat, and so he encouraged me to to meet other creators and eventually go to San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, so I went down there, kind of nervous because I didn't know anyone else, really. Not not in person, for sure. And uh, start to meet other creators and and just see, you know, kind of what was out there and, and inspire myself to want to make more comics. Uh, eventually, when I moved back to Ontario, a friend of mine who I'd worked with previously, he had gotten a job at the Udon Studio. Mm-hmm. And they were doing work for Marvel at that point. They were doing the, um, the Deadpool book with Gail Simone, and they were doing that book Sentinel. Oh, yeah. So I was... Uh, kind of helping out in the background. Udon was sort of a multifaceted company where they were doing comic book work, but they were doing a lot of other illustration and kind of uh, commercial design stuff. And so I got kind of involved with that and then started to move slowly but surely more into the comic side of things. Did some coloring, eventually did some sort of project management and art direction and learned kind of how the business worked. And that's really served me well now doing my own comics and things and so the more kind of production work I did the more uh, I learned about the business and the more it kind of made me hungry to want to make my own comics and it took quite a few years because I was sort of you know paying off student loans and just trying to get my feet wet with all this stuff but eventually um, I'd go on to make uh, make my own more comic stories start doing some freelance writing and then Kind of my breakout book was was 2010 with a image book called Skull Kickers, and that was a fantasy uh, comedy series that I did. And that, I mean, it wasn't the only book, but that was sort of the one that kind of put me on the map for most people, where they started to hear my name or, you know, look at me as like, oh, okay, Jim's really someone we can, you know, potentially hire to do stuff. And I've sort of been able to leverage that bit by bit and get more and more. Uh, writing gigs, even though my background's in art, I really love the collaborative process. I really love working with artists and uh, writing uh, comics. Storytelling is really my my thing, and so that's what I love doing now. And bit by bit, you know, uh, doing more titles, and, and then, so I've done, I guess, work for almost every major comic publisher in North America now. So Marvel and DC, Image, Dark Horse, IDW, Dynamite, of course, Udon. All kinds of different publishers. Wow. wow! Now with Skull Kickers, how I mean, how did that book kind of come to be? Especially because so that that's kind of your signature book, right? So, like, yeah, how, did, so, how did that happen? Yeah, that was a weird one because um, so an artist that I was working with at the Udon Studio, this guy Chris Stevens, he's really, really amazing, very skilled. He's actually doing some Marvel covers and stuff nowadays. But um, at the time, he was doing freelance work at the Udon Studio, and we were friends, and I really loved his artwork. And he was approached by um, the editors of an image anthology called Pop Gun. So Joe Keating, who would go on to do Glory, and uh, he actually wrote that Morbius book at Marvel and, and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's doing the book Shutter now at Image. Anyways, Joe was, was putting together Pop Gun Volume 2, and he really loved the artwork I was posting up from Steve and, and – or sorry, Chris Stevens, not Steve. Um, and so he reached out to Chris and sort of said, hey, do you want to do a short story for this anthology? And Chris was totally down for it, not realizing that, you know, it's Image. They, they want you to do whatever you want. They want you to tell your story. So Chris thought he was just going to, like, kind of work for hire, do someone else's story. And they said, no, no, do your own thing. 
And so he and I were sort of chatting, and this, um, you know, I, he didn't know what he wanted to do for the story. So I said, like, what do you like? What genre? He's like, oh, you know, fantasy, sword and sorcery. And so we kind of batted this idea back and forth, and I got him laughing about some stupid stuff he could do in the story. And so he um, he was going to go off and do it himself, and then like a couple days later he contacted me, and he's like, it was funnier when you were saying it on the phone. Do you just want to write this thing? <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, that's cool. I'll, I'll write this 10-page story. So I wrote a 10-page story for him, and we put it together, and, um, and he drew the hell out of it. Um, and, and Eric Larson, who was publisher at Image at the time, saw it and was like, this is cool. You know, do you guys want to do more with this? And we were like, yeah, maybe. And then we did another one for Pop Gun 3. And then Larson reached out again and said, you know, if you guys want to make an image book out of this, like I'd give it a serious look. And so I put together a full kind of pitch for, well, I guess it was originally supposed to be a mini series of what we would do, like a longer adventure with these two monster hunting idiots. And, um, Larson gave it the go-ahead and almost immediately uh, just stuff didn't come together like Chris's um, finances and stuff that was going on in his personal life kind of crumbled and he had to really concentrate on that stuff and so I had this first script and I had an outline and I had an approval but I didn't have an artist anymore and I was like well there goes that guess I'm not doing a comic um and then, uh, you know, I just sort of held on to it, threw the script in a drawer or whatever. And I guess about, um, I, it's hard for me to remember, maybe eight or nine months later, there was uh, an artist who had applied to the Udon studio. He just sent his portfolio to us. And most of the portfolios you get as like the slush pile are pretty, let's be honest, they're pretty weak sauce. And um, <laughs> this, this guy, Edwin, Edwin Huang, his artwork was really good. I thought it was pretty sharp. And he was really young at the time. He was just getting ready to graduate from art school. And so I said, look, man, you got some decent stuff here. You should um, you should really pursue this. Like, you should, you know, dig in. Here are some, you know, recommendations. Like, you're not leaving enough room for dialogue. And just pretty common uh, kind of feedback that you'd get from a lot of editors about comic pages if you haven't done that many before. And I said, you know, did you work from a script? And he's like, no, nah, I'm just kind of drawing these action sequences and stuff. And I said, well, it's useful to know that you're working from dialogue and all that. And he was like, well, do you have a script I can work from? And I said, well, the only script I've got that I have ownership of that I could lend you is this this fantasy thing that I wrote. And I can show you, you know, the original pages that Chris drew. And if you like them, you know, you can you can do some samples and just sort of show me and I'll give you critique. And he did. And they were great, and I ended up contacting Image again and sort of saying, hey, I think I've got an artist. And he, uh, he jumped on board, and so we, uh, we launched Skull Kickers together, the two of us, with Chris doing covers in uh, late 2010. Hmm. Now, the book, would you say it's, it's succeeded past your uh, expectations? <laughs> um, well, we ended up, I mean... For what was supposed to be a five-issue miniseries, we ended up doing 34 issues. So, So, yeah, yeah, it was a really good way to kind of put my work out there and show people what I was capable of and show that we could deliver quality on time and just all that stuff. I mean, financially, uh, creator-owned books can be really, you know, all over the place. And I don't know that we made a, a lot of money, but it was a really, I mean, it was like the best portfolio because it was it was an image book and it was out there and people were seeing it and talking about it. And, and at the time 
Image was just starting to get kind of their reputation built up again as like a really hot place to release creator-owned books. So like Chew It was just starting to get going and they had some good traction. And then Morning Glories came out and, you know, John Hickman was starting to do his thing and, and we were sort of in the midst of that little mini renaissance that kind of brought the focus back. But, you know, this is, of course, before Walking Dead. Like, Walking Dead was a big book, but it wasn't like TV big or anything. And so being in the midst of that kind of craziness and being able to just have an image book at that time as they were on the rise was really valuable in that way and to get my name out there and show people what I could do. How did you uh, come to write uh, Pathfinder for Dynamite? Um, well, you know, kind of a, a similar thing. I had done a bunch of um, freelance artwork and, and uh, art direction for Paizo, the guys that published Pathfinder. And so, and I'm a big role-playing game fan. I love tabletop role-playing games. And so I had met Eric Mona, the publisher at Paizo, several times, and we were friends. And so I was at Gen Con doing promotion of Skull Kickers, and he knew the series, and he had been reading it and quite amused by it. And so we were just having a casual conversation. He sort of said to me, he goes, well, you know, now I know a, a good fantasy comic writer. When we get the Pathfinder comic license going, you know, I'm going to give you a call. And I said, do it, man. I'll totally, I'll, I'll be there. And he laughed. He said, okay, are you serious? I was like, yeah. And almost a year to the day, almost a year, uh, he contacts me. And he goes, well, if you're serious, it's happening. So you're my first pick. And I went, all right. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much how that happened. So it was a very, um, yeah, it was, it, it was a nice, you know, synergy in terms of what I like and people I know and them entrusting me with, with their uh, property, you know. So, yeah, it sounds like it was a natural fit. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love the sword and sorcery stuff, and I love supernatural and fantasy and magic kind of storytelling. I, that's the sort of stuff that really I tend to gravitate toward. And so uh, any of those kinds of properties, my now my kind of CV sort of littered with them in a good way. So <laughs> um, I do want to ask, so you mentioned that you've worked for DC as well. So that was on The Legends of the Dark Knight, right? Yeah, I did a Legends of the Dark Knight two-parter, and I did an Amanda Waller Suicide Squad special for them. That's right. Now, what what was that? What did that look like working with DC? I mean, on something like that. Well, I mean, Legends of the Dark Knight's a really open-ended sort of thing where it's it's an anthology style, you know, uh, book where you're able to tell different kinds of Batman stories, and so they're not really they're not continuity, and they're not really. Um, heavy with oversight, you know, beyond certain obvious sort of rules about content. But uh, it was really open-ended. Hank Canals, he's a, a well, now he's a, a vice president over at DC, but at the time he was an editor doing their digital content. And um, he spearheaded a bunch of those digital books like the Batman 66 and I think the, the Wonder Woman one and the Superman one and, and of course, Legends. Uh, um, and so I had been writing these articles about the comic industry and some of the economics of creator owned and he had read some of them and quite liked them and he goes you know you seem like a really nice guy and he just reached out cold and he was like you know do you have a batman story in you and of course <laughs> the answer to that is always yes <laughs> and uh and then i got off the phone with him and then kind of lost my mind because someone just asked you to do a batman thing and spent about oh god four or five days kind of freaking myself out, like, how am I going to write a Batman story? What can I possibly say 
that hasn't been said before or said better by someone else. And um, my wife was very much a, a sort of port in the storm where she said, you, you're going crazy. You're, you know, you're way too uptight about this. Don't think about every Batman story. Think about the villain. You know, narrow your focus. And so I ended up saying, okay, well, you know, I really like Harley Quinn. And weirdly enough, uh, Hank would tell me that up to that point, there had never been a Harley Quinn Legends of the Dark Knight story. Hmm. Interesting. Really odd. Like, yeah. uh, I mean, you look at the character now, and she's so huge. But at the time, she, I mean, it was just a few years ago, she was just on the cusp of sort of blowing up big. And I just, I mean, I wanted to write that character so bad. And so came up with kind of a fun idea based around Harley and then how Batman interacts with her and all this sort of stuff. And that was the the fuel that really got the story going and made it all function. And so uh, pitched it, nervously pitched it, and Hank enthusiastically approved it. And uh, it was a blast. I mean, got to work with Neil Gooch, who's a, just a top-notch artist. He's phenomenal. And tried to deliver a story that, like, if I never get to write Batman again, this is like the... Batman story I would write and just put my all into it and people responded really well um, I got the nicest message from Paul Dini you know the co-creator of Harley oh, wow he told me he really liked it and I'm pretty sure because he really liked it uh, that's why it's in one of the sort of best of Harley Quinn trade collections oh wow uh, which uh, makes me very very happy obviously yeah, no, that's, I mean, I don't think you could think of higher praise than that, right? Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It was like my birthday and the, the first part of the two-parter had come out uh, the week before. And just on my birthday, just Paul just emailed me out of the blue. And he's like, hey, Zub, I read your uh, Harley story. It's really good. You know, you really, you understand the character. Thanks for, you know, taking care of it. Uh, happy birthday. And I was just like, well, I don't need any other gifts today. I'm, uh, I'm all taken care of. All thanks to your wife giving you some good advice. Yeah. Well, you know, just sort of, yeah, kind of bringing my sanity back. And, you know, because you, you wind yourself, when you're working with these big characters, with these iconic characters, you can really freak yourself out where you're like, oh, it has to be perfect. I have to do the ultimate, you know, story, and, and this is going to go down in the annals of history or some crazy stuff. And you're like, or, you, you know, don't worry about that. Let's just tell a good story. Let's just focus on, you know, making something something you're proud of in general so absolutely now how did you come to write a, a samurai jack story well i wrote like 20 issues of samurai jack um I, an editor at idw had reached out to me for another project and so it didn't end up working out my schedule was slammed at the time and then later on when it opened up i just said to him hey i'm available and he's like oh well that original project is already spoken for uh, do you like Samurai Jack? We're putting together a proposal with Cartoon Network to do new Samurai Jack stories. And because of my animation background, I knew it very well and I really liked it. And so it was a what we call a bake-off where there were multiple writers pitching and they sent them all into uh, Cartoon Network for them to decide who would be the actual writer. And mine was the one they picked. So wow. you know, sort of straightforward. Uh, Genny Tartakovsky and the Cartoon Network people looked over the pitches and decided that mine was the one that was the one they wanted to move forward with. So uh, Andy Suriano, who helped design the show, he and I did uh, you know did the series with a few fill-in artists coming in when he was too busy. But all told, we did twenty issues, and it was a 
It was an absolute thrill to work on. I love that property. Now, as we mentioned, in and around this is when you started working on Figment and Figment 2. Right. Um, now, how let's let's come current. How did you get the gig uh, to um, write a relaunched Thunderbolts book? Um, well, that was pretty, you know, Tom Brevoort over at the uh, Avengers office, um, I had reached out to him previously, and we had talked a couple times, and he knew that I was like... I loved doing the Figment book, and I loved, you know, uh, but you know, all that kind of stuff. But I've I've been wanting to do like, you know, in continuity superhero stuff for a while, and uh, it was just I think about finding the right fit in terms of a project that I could really sink my teeth into. And so I pitched on another project, and it didn't work out. And you just kind of got to wait, you know, not wait your turn because I don't think it's that simple, but just find the right fit, you know. And so. Tom reached out and it was pretty rapid. He reached out and said, Hey, you know, do you know Thunderbolts? I was like, Oh, I know the property. Absolutely. And he's like, you know, here's the, the cast of characters we're looking at spinning out of this event. What would your take be on it? And that's really, you know, you've got this sort of open palette to sort of say, okay, this is my approach and it's going to change. Like, you know, they knew that, uh, what, and I knew whatever I sort of said, it wouldn't be the exact thing that I'd be doing, but just give them an overall sense of that I would be a good shepherd to the property or I'd be able to bring something interesting to the fold on it. And thankfully, they they, they felt that I did with the pitch. And so, um, you know, they uh, let me run with it. And, and it's uh, been just a ton of fun to dig in on the, on the Marvel Universe proper and, you know, contribute. And, yeah, I'm really excited for people to see what John and I have been cooking up for it because I think... Uh, a lot of cool stuff's coming in the you know in the months uh, down the road, both in Thunderbolts and in sort of the broader uh, Avengers slash Captain America kind of universe, for lack of a better term. You know, uh, as as we're moving forward. Now, if you, if you had to kind of summarize, like what, like who are the Thunderbolts to you? Like in this, well, in this I mean, there's been so many iterations of the Thunderbolts, but I think the the relative constant that we see through the book is, you know, kind of bad people trying to do good things or good people being pulled into bad things. Like it's just, it's this moral gray area where they are, some of them are trying to redeem themselves. Some of them are just trying to use it as cover, but villainy and heroism sort of fighting for supremacy in terms of the team. So different versions of the team have been all about redemption and other versions of the team have been about, you know, keeping secrets or, or hiding out villains in a heroic disguise. So I think there's that great interplay of, of heroism and villainy and kind of the moral gray area of where they intersect. You know, bad people doing uh, good things for the right reasons, but maybe the wrong way. That kind of stuff. What's it like getting into the into the Winter Soldier's head? Uh, it's great, honestly. I mean, uh, that was an unexpected surprise where they told me he was going to be leading the team. And uh, it just adds a whole other element because he's very much in that same you know, he's gone through so much and he's redeemed himself, but always kind of been on, on that line in terms of his own morality, you know, once he uh, became an assassin. And so now it's, it's really neat being able to add that dynamic, let alone the fact that you've got a team that is almost all founding members plus him. And so now he's like the, the outsider, but he's also the leader. And so, you know, which members of the team trust him or, how do they 
feel about him and, and even their overall mission that he's bringing to the fold, it adds a really cool dynamic. And it, uh, the, you know, the Thunderbolts are always about, you know, dramatic kind of payoffs and, and unexpected twists and lots of inner character conflict. And so he just amps that up in a really cool way. Now, this, this is kind of a silly question, but uh, like in comic, are they going to be referring them to themselves as the Thunderbolts? Um, yes. Yeah, I don't know that they... Yeah, they are. I mean, you got to keep in mind the majority of the team is from the original Thunderbolts. So True. you've got Moonstone, you've got Atlas, you've got Fixer, you've got, in this case, Mach 10. Um, so they're all you know original members. And so they think of themselves as the Thunderbolts, even though they're a different iteration of it. They kind of look at themselves as the Thunderbolts. I don't know that the people that are, um, how do I put this? People who don't like them will call them the Thunderbolts, or that they're going to like jump out of the sky and say, "Go get them, Thunderbolts!" You know, kind of thing. But but they are the Thunderbolts, absolutely. Okay. Now, of, of the kind of classic members that are returning, who who is the easiest to, to kind of get into the mindset of? Hmm, good question. Um, uh, I mean, Atlas is probably the most what you see is what you get kind of guy. Like, he's very much about, he wants this team to work and he wants to do better. And he's always, he's never been a, a leader. He's always kind of been, and I mean this not in an insulting way, but like a follower. Like, he looks for leadership from someone else and someone else to have a confident direction. And he sees that in Bucky. And, and so he's probably the easiest one to sort of get a feel for because he's kind of, very on the surface wants this to work um but i like i like writing kind of the the morally troubled characters or the characters who are causing uh a lot of the turmoil because they are more guarded or they are kind of playing off each other trying to get what they want and so they're all kind of fun in different ways you know they're all um all their their machinations are enjoyable to sort of play with. One of the things I put together as part of the pitch was this kind of character matrix, which broke down how they all feel about each other at the start of the series and what their kind of goals are. And so in any kind of iteration or any kind of setup of a scene, I can look and kind of go, okay, what are these people, what do they get out of this particular mission or what are they trying to get? And it just makes the dynamic and the dialogue and everything flow a lot easier. Now, when the book launches, are we going to immediately see them kind of interacting with the larger Marvel Universe, or are we going to kind of see them kind of going off on their own for a bit? Um, well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at larger Marvel Universe. I mean, it's not necessarily a crossover, like right from the get-go, <laughs> but the things they are doing, in so the book launches out of a, a current event called Avengers Standoff, and there's some sort of aftermathy stuff from that. You can totally pick up Thunderbolts number one, and you don't have to have read standoff. Although there's sort of a quick, quick recap of, of the main kind of bullet points of it. But um, if you've read it, you'll get a lot more out of it, obviously. And so they're kind of in the thick of that element. And so there are broader ramifications for the Marvel Universe. But, um, yeah, I didn't want to make a book where you're like, oh, man, I have to read like 20 books to just to understand why they said that thing. You know, it's very much about get up and go. It's action-packed right from the first page, and you get a feel for their, their dynamic and how they're getting along or maybe not getting along uh, right from the get-go. 
This is an odd question and perhaps not one you can actually fully answer, but okay. um, given you know the Thunderbolts legacy and all the different characters who have been on the team in the past, uh, which Thunderbolts member from the past would you most like to write at some point? Um, that varies. I mean, there are so many cool characters that have been on the Thunderbolts. Once I got the gig, I actually, I'd read some of them, but I went back and reread everything. So I read every issue, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> and every um, every issue of Dark Avengers, which which was kind of filled my head with a crazy amount of material. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually surprised at how varied the cast had been. So, like, there's characters like, um, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Songbird is on the new Avengers right now. So at some point, there's got to be some sort of interaction with her and the rest of the team considering that she's one of the only founding members that's not around when this new version launches. Um, but beyond her, I don't know. It's like, I, I try not to make it such a, a, a nostalgia fest that you need to have read the earlier material. I'll, I'll never like contradict anything that's happened before. But I don't want it to be so navel gazing that you're like, remember that time we did a thing, you know, every <laughs> issue. Like, I want it to be moving forward uh, as much as possible. And so, in some ways, I'd kind of like to shake up the roster with some characters who have never been on the Thunderbolts and see um, see how they add to the dynamic in the way that Bucky is added to the dynamic. While not, you know, trying to get, I'm not trying to get rid of the team, obviously, or the people that <laughs> uh, the founding members, but you know. I liked when guys like Jeff Parker would add, you know, Man-Thing to the team or Satana or something like that. And you're just like, this is cool. Like, this is just unexpected and kind of funky. And, I, you know, I'd like to sort of push in that direction and, and bring some new uh, new stuff into the fold. What's it like writing a Bucky who's a leader of a team? Because we've seen him, obviously, as Captain America. We've seen him struggle with, you know, who he's been. We've seen him be the man on the wall, but we've never really seen him lead a team like this. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge for him, and that's a ton of fun because he's he's always been more of a, well, since he became Winter Soldier, he's been more of a loner. And so, you know, yeah, he was Captain America, and in theory, he was helping lead the Avengers, but in it, that's never been his strength, you know. That's not how he thinks strategically or anything. And so this, I don't want to. <clears throat> how do I put it? It is a burden, essentially, you know, that he's taken on with this team, and he feels um, he's feeling the pressure right from the first issue, and that's part of the dynamic that I'm excited about. Now, again, this is probably again a question you can't really answer but so with Bick, Bucky being the leader of a, this assortment of, of characters characters who have a history together and have been a team in the past and he's kind of the, the odd one out do we right. see the creation of that team does it actually occur in the pages of Standoff or is it in your book or we have to read and find out um, I can tell you that it, it kind of happens between Standoff and Thunderbolts number one so we start them as a team formed and there's they're brought together at the end of standoff, but I don't really want to give away Nick's stuff there. So Nick definitely puts all the ingredients into play and it's, it's a short hop for you to figure out. And I mean, we cover it, but we don't explicitly like see like, Hey, we should all be in the same place, you know, as a team. Like it's more like, okay, they're all, they're all available in there. 
and the impetus for them being brought together as a team is made pretty clear at the end of standoff and then we pick up that they have been doing this for a short period okay now obviously this is going to be coming out the week after our um so a week after this podcast drops what other upcoming works do we have to look forward to from you well hilariously the week of may 4th which is uh when thunderbolts drops i actually have like two other things coming out which is kind of fortuitous and not at all planned actually um, so I'm doing Dungeons and Dragons uh, a new miniseries for them I did a miniseries a year and a half ago that went over very well and so they've asked me to do more D&D and so I've got this miniseries called um, Shadow of the Vampire which is coming out uh, from IDW and the first issue comes out the same day as Thunderbolts number one and then I also have the third volume of my current creator owned series at Image called Wayward and that also comes out uh, on May 4th. So uh, I've been joking around because May 4th is like the Star Wars day where everyone says, may the 4th be with you. Yep. And so I've been saying, may the 4th be with Zub as like a joke <laughs> promotional thing. I like that. Uh, like try my stuff because, you know, it's all it's all coming out that day. It's a good time to dive into a bunch of different Zub books. Now, uh, what uh, how do, what is Wayward for those who are uninitiated? Sure. So Wayward is a uh, supernatural, dramatic action series. The, the shorthand way of pitching it, I say, is sort of like Buffy in Japan. So it's teenagers fighting Japanese mythological monsters on the streets of modern Tokyo. And it's a bit about like our view of mythology in the modern world, if you wanted to get a little bit more deep about it. Um, so it's like teenagers kicking ass, fighting uh, really weird and exotic and, and wonderful uh, Japanese spirits and monsters, which are kind of collectively called yokai. And so um, if you know stuff about Japanese mythology, you'll dig right in. And if you don't, the nice thing is is that the main character is learning about it as you're learning about it. So you get to sort of walk alongside with her and get pulled into this cool world uh, as she moves to Tokyo and then gets pulled into this sort of big supernatural conspiracy. Very cool. Any other parting thoughts before we uh, close off for today? Um, just that, uh, I, I mean, if your listeners are interested in the in any of the sort of stuff about making comics or any of the kind of broader industry stuff, on my website I've got quite a few tutorials on how to script comics, how to make uh, stories, how to write action, and some of the economics of kind of the creator-owned industry. So if people are curious about some of the things going under the hood, in the business of comics, they might find that interesting as well. And what's the website? It's jimzub.com. So J I M uh, Z U B.com. Well, for Canadians. I was going to say. Z- I used to do an American podcast, and I always say Z. That's funny. It's sad. I always have to catch myself because uh, my son's name is Zachary, so it starts with a Z. So right. I, I'm very, like, I have to point that out every time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it happens all the time, too, when I'm talking to Canadians versus Americans at different conventions. Actually, that, I have one last question. Um, sure. So, obviously, you, you go by, I guess, professionally by Jim Zub. Why did right. you short, shorten your last name? Well, I, my, so my name is Zubkovich, and so uh, it's Ukrainian, and I have nothing against, you know, my ethnic background or anything. It's just, um, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a handful in terms of uh, spelling and in terms of pronunciation. It also... When you grow up with a name that rhymes with "son of a bitch," you learn pretty to uh, maybe maybe that's not 
the one I want to go with. And so uh, it fits better on a cover as Zub. And all my friends in college called me Zub. And it's sort of just stuck. It's just the, the name that people use. Like Stan Lee's name isn't Stan Lee. Like his actual name is Stanley Lieber. So, you know, there's a precedent there. I'll, uh, I'll go in the, you know, in, in the tradition of Stan Lee. There's, you know, th- there's nothing wrong with that, right? Right. <laughs> that those are good footsteps to follow in. I think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, Jim. And obviously, readers, uh, sorry, listeners, you can uh, look forward to three different uh, options for uh, sampling Jim's work on Wednesday, May 4th. Thanks again for joining us today, Jim. My pleasure.